You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 32 of the Archaeology and Ale podcast and another segment of Half Pint. The podcast is brought to you by Archaeology in the City, the community outreach program from the University of Sheffield's Department of Archaeology. In this Half Pint, we have Dr. Lenore Thompson speaking to us about her recently completed PhD research about copper production on Canada's Pacific coast and interactions therein between indigenous and colonial people. My name is Lenore Thompson, and I'm originally from a really tiny town in Alberta, Canada. I did my undergrad degree in Vancouver at UBC, and then I worked as a professional archaeologist for about five years um, all along the coast of BC and in the interior. Pretty amazing. And, um, and then eventually I decided to come and do my master's degree so I could sort of further my knowledge and initially I had mentioned well I had meant to go to Sheffield because it's got a really good reputation around the world and learn some material science things I could bring back to BC and then all of my master's work and dissertation ended up turning into a PhD question and so I ended up staying on to do a PhD at Sheffield. Tell us about your research project and what it hoped to accomplish. I was looking at the impacts of entanglements from cultural contact and colonialism mm. that occurred on the northwest coast of North America when Europeans and Russians and then later Americans came to the area. And I was doing that by following copper metal and its use by the indigenous people living on the northwest coast and i chose copper for a very specific reason it's because the metal occurs naturally in the area so it was collected and used by indigenous people prior to any russians or europeans there you know them coming physically to trade their material uh, before any of that happened na naturally occurring native copper could be collected from stream runoffs um from glaciers and mountains and they could work it and make it into beads and tinkers and uh, rings all sorts of things and uh, then this material was important and had a prescribed meaning prior to any Europeans showing up and it remained important throughout that period and up until now so and they continued using it so I wanted to look at the different ways that they decided to use this material when it became what we thought was European trade metal and if they decided to interact with it differently and how they use their material culture to mediate the world around them, mm -hmm. how that might have changed through colonial periods. I understand that your research used PXRF technology. Could you tell us more about that and why it was so valuable to your work? PXRF stands for Portable X-Ray Fluorescence Machine. And uh, 
it's used to shoot uh, low-level x-rays basically at the surface of something and excite the electrons and neutrons uh, in the atoms and based on what happens to those excited um, electrons and neutrons and, and uh, protons you can uh, measure the types of elements in the material and what part per million or percentage mm -hmm. uh, is there. The portable x-ray fluorescence device that I had, which looks like a big hair dryer, could point it directly at the copper that was used to make the artifacts and I could sample that material in a non-destructive way, uh, which is very important. So there's no damage done to the artifacts and I could tell what kind of elements were involved in the makeup of that metal. So if there was zinc, um, maybe it was uh, a brass. If it if there was some tin, maybe it was a bronze. I could tell if it was leaded. So I could see if um, the metal was consistent with different things or, or consistent with the naturally occurring material, which only has uh, a very tiny trace amount of maybe silver and iron in it from the northwest coast is a very specific chemical signature and so i could tell if the metal was consistent and the portable x-ray fluorescence device is only um a superficial sampling technique because it only samples one tiny spot and it only penetrates the metal a few millimeters you have to be very careful because you can uh, accidentally sample some corrosion or um, get a, a concentration of lead inside the copper and think that there is more lead in the material as a whole. You have to be um, kind of careful using the device, but you can make some pretty educated inferences about what the material is consistent with based on not destructive like uh, mass spectrometry where the samples have to be burned so you can sample it over and over again without any negative damage on the artifact which is really nice tell us more about the project's methodology well because naturally occurring copper is uh has a very distinct chemical signature I chemically characterized a bunch of over 300 indigenous artifacts created using copper through between the 1700s and 20th century. And that way I could track if the metal was consistent with naturally occurring native copper or manufactured metals. Because the indigenous people on the Northwest coast chose to never smelt or melt metal, they never altered the chemical signature of the metal so if there's any lead or zinc or tin or bismuth or nickel in the metal um you know suggesting it's an alloy or has been manufactured with um different impurities that don't occur naturally on the northwest coast then it's easy to identify as the metal being consistent with the trade metal and that way i could tell um if the indigenous people were choosing to only use naturally occurring metal or only use trade metal and how they applied those uh, materials to make conspicuous, important ceremonial and other artifacts throughout this period and see what the upheaval. And uh, I also coupled that with sort of a really broad investigation of all of the uh, literature 
any available oral histories, primary documents from Russians and Europeans, uh, traders, later colonists, um, ethnographic work, archaeological research, and then I sort of put it all together so I could make some sense of it and be able to tell a story of what was mm. happening through that time. Lenore, during your time working and training as an archaeologist, was there anything that drew you to want to research this for your PhD? Um, well, I think growing up in Canada and having a lot of exposure to how living Indigenous cultures are navigating the world today, what colonialism means in a in a colonized country is uh, I really drew me to the subject. And then when I went mm -hmm. to university and then became a field archaeologist, sort of opened my eyes to the world we live in and the ways that colonialism has impacted our decisions mm -hmm. and things today. And so when I came to do my master's, um, I still had lots of questions about obviously the land that I lived in. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had always wondered about uh, metallography, archaeomaterials. And at Sheffield, there was the opportunity to study ancient metals and mm -hmm. to continue on with my interest in the Northwest Coast and trying to figure out what sort of archaeological interests uh, had mm -hmm. been casually posed to me. There wasn't a lot of focus on metals uh, when I was doing my undergrads. So this sort of gave me a new a new way to investigate something that I have always been interested and passionate in. In the end, what do you feel you learned from your research about these indigenous cultures, about their interaction with Europeans and about colonialism in general? Well, I guess um, what was surprising that I discovered was that the majority of the metal that I characterized uh, was made out of manufactured metal from someplace, um, someplace else that wasn't naturally occurring material from the Northwest okay. coast. And so that means that um, the material that uh, I was looking at had a consistent way that people chose to use it. Uh, they once, once Europeans and Russians showed up, there was uh Obviously, the knowledge of smelting and melting came with them, but indigenous mm -hmm. people chose not to not to use that mm -hmm. technique. And um, so the amount of manufactured metal and the persistent use of indigenous traditional mm -hmm. archaeometallurgical techniques um, suggests that the copper had been used for a really long time prior to the European showing up, but mm -hmm. that the trade metal had been in the area. Potentially, um, I have looked at some stuff that uh, should be datable to contexts prior to any Europeans or Russians arriving in the air by a few hundred years. It's consistent with manufactured trade metals. So it's possible that the materials coming from drift copper and drift drift material from shipwrecks uh, or from trade, uh, potentially as far away as China, traveling across Russia and across the Bering Strait and onto the Northwest coast. Mm. And uh, this is something I'd like to pursue further. And then I guess probably the biggest lesson I learned from my research was that colonialism is 
um, much more of a patchwork of experiences than what we commonly think of it as. We think of it often as a, a dominant culture and for some reason, a less dominant culture through technology or something, um, and then one sort of crushing the other. What I found actually happened on the Northwest coast is that the indigenous people were living their lives. They weren't thinking about maintaining their heritage forever for children in perpetuity. They were making decisions that were good for them at the time that helped them navigate their world the way that they wanted to. For example, the mission missionaries were pretty interested in, uh, pretty keen to teach Indigenous people English mm. and uh, have them speak English. And so this was for reasons to do with civilization, as far as the missionaries were concerned. But um, the Indigenous people realized pretty quickly that taking advantage of that education and learning how to speak English gave them a stronger voice to argue for their own land rights. So actually people are living a sort of patchwork of experiences, trying to, to do what they want to do to achieve their goals, not as simple as, uh, you know, a strong colonial power coming in and taking over. And I mean, the fact that you find indigenous and descendant cultures all over the world um, still fighting for like re restitution and repatriation and all of that shows that, you know, this, this idea of uh, a colonizer taking over is potentially a story told more by the winner. Yeah, not an actual truth. I think that was probably the most important thing I learned. Thank you for listening to this Archaeology and Ale Half Pint. For more information about Lenore or her research, please visit the show notes which accompany this episode. And for more information about our podcast, please visit our page on the Archaeology Podcast Network. You can get in touch with us at Archaeology in the City on Facebook, WordPress, Instagram, or Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. See you next time. show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.